Hi, I'm Jackie Bavaro, and this is the Progression Podcast. Hi, this is Johnny from Progression. Welcome back to a long-awaited new season of the Progression Podcast, where we speak to experts in everything from building individual engineering, design, and product teams to growing entire companies about anything related to growing careers. Today, I'm thrilled to finally release an interview I recorded last year with Jackie Bavaro. Jackie is perhaps best known for her books Cracking the PM Career and Cracking the PM Interview, but she also served for a long time in product leadership at Asana, uh, eight years I think, and did tours of duty at uh, Google and others too. We dig into Jackie's thoughts on career growth uh, and navigating that within her own career as well as on behalf of the team she's built and managed, and she drops some fantastic tactical advice on feedback that I now use every week with our team, so make sure you stick around for that. Apologies in advance, my sound in this interview is pretty awful. I ended up having to use a backup audio for myself. Luckily, I don't talk nearly as much as Jackie does, and her sound is great. Apologies for that, though, on my behalf. Uh, Before we kick off, remember that you can sign up for Progression at progression.co. It's free for your first team of 10, and we've shipped some amazing features recently that you should definitely check out if you're trying to work all of this career growth stuff out for your team. Anyway, back to the pod. Hi, Jackie. Welcome to the Progression Podcast. This is the first one for a little while, so it's really awesome to have you on. We came about because of a challenge that I had as a founder and before that as a a manager trying to work out career progression for my team. And um, I'm still thinking about this problem many years later, and I spotted you on Twitter. In retrospect, I think I've seen your books flying around. You wrote a book, Cracking the PM Career. But you've had a long storied history as a product manager and a product leader before that. So I'd love to hear just at the start a little bit about you, Jackie, your background, potted history. That'd be awesome. Yeah. And thanks for having me. I'm very excited to talk about career progression. So my story is probably starts as I was a computer science and economics undergrad at Cornell. And I had never heard of product management, but someone pushed me into the job and I ended up getting an internship at Microsoft. I was there for three years or well, after two years, I was going to move to New York and I decided I was going to interview at Google. And I thought I was an amazing product manager. I was sure I would pass the interview and I had two phone interviews and then was rejected. So I didn't really know why I was rejected. I kind of felt like I had answered the questions wrong. But a year later, I applied again, got into Google's APM program. And at the time, it felt like getting rejected was the worst part of my career, the worst thing that could ever happen. But it ended up being the impetus for writing Cracking the PM Interview, which was my first book, really because I I saw that there were just a lot of secrets about interviewing for the product manager job. There was so much that I had misunderstood, misinterpreted during the process and during the interview questions. And I thought that if I could help somebody with just 10 minutes of explaining how to think about these questions, we could get a lot more people who had the potential to be great product managers into the role. And so I was at Google for three years and then went to Asana when it was a startup. I was uh, the 13th person there and grew with the company and uh, was there for over eight years, became a manager, became a manager of managers, got to have experience writing career ladders. And after about eight years, I was ready to take a break and wrote my second book, Cracking the PM Career. And I wanted to 
do what I had done for interviews again for careers. Basically, this idea that when I was brand new at Microsoft, I read the career ladder. I read this the job description of, you know, like each level to try to figure out what was my job and what was I supposed to be doing and what was I supposed to be getting better at. But it was really hard to use that as a path to grow. And so that sort of inspired me to write this new book. Awesome. This is, may sound like a really silly question, but um, people that have listened to this podcast before may know that I'm not a product manager. I now find myself in the position of building a product and running a product, a very small product organization, I suppose. But I would love to hear, before we get into the career side of things and the, the book and stuff like that, you were the 13th employee at a tech company and then saw it grow exponentially. Could you describe to me what the difference is between the role of a product manager at a 13 person company versus a product manager at a thousands person company? Sure. So at both companies, I sort of see the product manager as someone who works on the team with the engineers and usually with designers now. But when I was at Microsoft, it was a tester. It was a design, uh, or sorry, it was dev test and PM. No, um, no designers at the time. But the thing that really amazed me is I went from Google, one of these, you know, 10,000 person companies as a product manager. And I had my first week at Asana on the startup. And I thought things would be totally different. And after my first two weeks, I was talking to people and they said, what's it like at a startup? And I said, the day-to-day feels exactly like working with my team at Google did, except that after we come together and we align and we come up with the decision of what we want to do, there's nobody who wasn't in that room who now we have to loop in and get approvals from. So it feels very, very similar, except that all the people who need to make that decision are in the room with you. And that's, uh, that's really nice and can feel like you're moving very fast. Awesome. How closely did you work with Dustin and others at that, those early stages of Asana? Like, what was it? How was it sort of brainstorming founders and everything? Mm-hmm. It was amazing. So JR is the, product-y, the more product-y co-founder and Dustin was the CEO. And at the time, I had thought that I wanted to be a CEO eventually. But what I saw is that the CEO does a lot of stuff to keep the company running that I was just really thankful that he put the time into, but isn't stuff at all that I'd want to do. So we would have our stand-ups and everybody in the company would go around and talk about what we'd worked on. And he's like, well, I'm still working on the lease for our new building (laughs) in the next week. Yes, we're trying to make sure we can have more than one computer per person in the new building. And so, so it's all of this, this work that needs to be done to get things going. And I'm really thankful for that, but they don't, the CEO doesn't get to be as involved in the product side. Our other founder, JR, very involved in the product side. He's an incredible visionary, really strong at painting a a picture of what the future looks like and inspiring people to want to get there with him. Mm -hmm. And I learned so much about, about vision and strategy from him. Awesome. I hope you don't mind me asking about all of this stuff, but we're a 13, we're yeah. 14, 15 person company at the moment. So we are at the point probably that you were at um, when you joined. I'm interested. Yeah, I was just going to share one little story yeah, yeah. was, um, so when I was new, I did a little bit of coding. And so I had a Git installation on my computer and I messed it up at one point and I needed somebody to come over and help me out. And Dustin was the one who came <laughs> over and sat at my laptop and help get my Git working again. So um, I felt I felt a little bit silly sitting there being like, 
is this the best thing he could be doing yeah, yeah. at this time? <laughs> but he's an incredible leader. Well, it was a leveraged task, you know, he was unblocking you and allowing you to, to move faster. I'd love to know just a little bit more about, because we're going to talk about ownership effectively, like autonomy and impact on the organization. And you talked about JR. How was he describing or getting across the vision of the product in a way that could just like unlock you and unlock the team? Like what, what were some of the things that he was talking about? How was he getting them across? There's a few different ways. So I would say that, that there's sort of the, the big picture and the more concrete vision. So mm. the more concrete version of the vision is five years from now, here's how the world is going to look like. Let me walk you through a day in the life of this group of people working together and how amazing and futuristic and seamless it feels to be living in this future world. So I got to sit with him while he put those presentations together and he would show examples and tell stories of, you know, it wasn't possible to build something like this before because it was just too much coordination work. But with Asana, we can actually tackle like bigger and better things. And he would have a mixture of, you know, imagine the future, but also real customers who were um, living with Asana today and mixing it together. So it really did feel believable that Asana could be something that helped people do better. Yeah. Um, so like, for example, we visited someone from the aquarium in, in San Francisco, and they talked about having to take care of someone, their family, and they thought they were going to lose their job. But then they found Asana and were able to be doing their, their marketing job and taking care of their family and being more effective than they were before. So that combination of real stories, plus like, let me show you how great the future can be. Yeah. That's the vision I love, but also JR had a, and has a complete picture of all of the pieces of Asana and how they fit together to go forward to the future. So it really helps with systems thinking because it's not just, here's a vague idea of what's going to happen in the future, but yeah. rather here's how the platform connects with the, um, the sales team motion yeah. and the, um, and the extensibility. So you kind of see it all come together. Yes. Yeah, sort of product vision links to the the vision of the whole company and how the company fits. Yeah, fantastic. Sorry, that was a complete diversion, but you mentioning 13 people, it's just really uh, resonated with me. I'd love to know, getting back to careers, I suppose, a little bit more, your journey from first PM at 13 through to, through your eight years, like, how did that look for you? How did you navigate your way through the organization? Yeah. I had five or six years of experience when I joined. I'd actually at one point missed a promotion at Google. And I, I kind of thought that I was showing all the skills and I was doing everything I needed to. And then somebody was like, Jack, you can't get promoted unless the thing you're working on launches. <laughs> and I was, it was this like mind explode moment where I was like, oh, of course. But why did nobody say that to me? Yeah. It was like, it was obvious in retrospect, but at the time I hadn't really connected that like my job was to actually get these things out into the world. Mm -hmm. So I'd had experience though with getting promoted and launching things before I got to Asana. And then at Asana, my goal was really to grow with the company. I was an individual product manager. We hired some other product managers and we all reported to JR. And at one point there, I was talking about hiring a manager for the PMs. Mm -hmm. And I said, why not me? <laughs> Uh, and he was, he was surprised that I was interested, but then he went and he's like, let me think about it. And he came back with like a bulleted list of 32 things I needed to improve yeah. before I'd be good enough to be a PM or to be a manager of PMs. And we had a really good relationship. So I, I didn't take offense to this. 
And I kind of worked down the list and uh, some of them were ones I thought I was already doing. So I would say, I was like, oh, this one over here. Do you think on the last launch when I uh, gave that presentation to the company, did that, was that demonstrating the skill you were looking for? And sometimes you'd be like, yeah, oh yeah, let me just check that one off. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes you'd be like, no, that's not quite what I was looking for. I think a really, you know, somebody who's ready to be a manager would be doing it this different way. Mm -hmm. And then there were some that were really resonating with me that the one that, that really stuck with me is that I used to think that the product manager's job was to be a counterbalance point to design. So design would say, we'd love to spend six months designing the ideal future state. And I'd say, we should do two weeks. And then we'd meet in the middle. <laughs> and as a designer, you probably yeah. experienced this. <laughs> but it turns out that like, if my intention was to meet in the middle the whole time, saying two weeks was disingenuous. And it meant that I wasn't showing... I needed somebody to supervise me. I needed somebody who could like balance between me and the designer. Mm -hmm. And to be a manager myself, I needed to not require that supervision. So I needed to be able to change the way I worked and say like, hey, what do we think the right amount of time is? And I'd put my stake in the ground at the part amount that I thought really was the right amount and mm -hmm. work to drive towards that rather than trying to like uh, basically lie about what I thought the right amount of time was to like be a negotiation tactic. And that was a hard shift to do because I had to go and admit what I had been doing to everyone I worked with and tell them I was going to do it differently and ask them to not like try to not expect to negotiate me from my, my new middle point over to the end. Yeah, that's, that sounds, there's a challenging moment in there. And, you know, often growth is painful, right? You have those moments of like, oh man, okay, I've got to, I, I get egg on my face at this point. Uh, but it sounds like you had an amazing relationship with JR, which meant that you could actually have there's a safe space for you to be able to recognize when there was something you still needed to do and you could have that honest conversation about it and maybe have a little bit of back and forth. Mm -hmm. One thing that we always think about is how important managers are, of course, in people's careers. The next most important person after you in your career is, is the manager you work with. Um, so how would you recommend people sort of approach the relationship they have with their manager to be able to get the most out to have that what the what you had with JR how can everyone get that yeah so i think the first thing is to is to remember that your manager is human and i think that there's a tendency to see your manager as this authority figure mm. and forget about about how human they are in different ways and so sometimes it comes up as people like really venting and complaining to their manager in a way that stresses their manager out and we would love for our manager to hear our vents and complaints and not have it affect how they view us or affect how much they want to promote us. But it does. Like if we're stressing our manager out and they don't like us, they're not going to want to put the effort in. They're not going to want to go to bat for us. So there's a lot about your manager being human. I think also that a lot of people, I'm, I'm a big fan of people being ambitious, especially women get told like, you know, we get critiqued for being too ambitious. It's like not socially acceptable. Mm. I'm a big fan though of being ambitious, but I think that given that our society isn't that open to it, there are some ways to make it go a little smoother. And so I think, for example, for women, it really helps to not be ambitious on behalf of yourself, but on behalf of your team. And also for anybody, it helps to not be sort of accusing your manager of not promoting you, but to put them into a future looking state where they're on your side. Mm -hmm. So the template mm -hmm. I like to use for this is say like, hey, I would love to 
become a, uh, a manager someday so that I can deliver more impact for the company so that I can like really help the company expand and achieve our, our goals. Like I want to like get to this, I want to expand my impact on behalf of the company. And then you can make it future looking and say, what do you think I, I should be focusing on now so that I'll be ready when the opportunity comes up? Mm. So mm. this does a few things. It makes your goal clear. It makes it clear sort of how it's going to help the company. And then it brings your manager onto your side being like, hey, can you help me? Like, let's get me this next promotion together. And I'm not saying like, I should have had it already. I'm open to your feedback here. Mm. So that way they sort of want to take you under their wing and help you out. And it also really focuses the kind of feedback you're going to get. Because I've seen lots of managers who just give feedback on anything that could be improved, but that a lot of those improvements have nothing to do with your next promotion. Mm. So some of that, it sounds like, is actually just telling your manager what you want, which I think is yeah. sort of obvious maybe to some, but is actually potentially hard for a lot of people to, I mean, I know that when I've had reports and I've asked them like, what do you want next? And sometimes it's difficult or uncomfortable for people to say sounds. Um, and I think especially in the UK, actually, there's a little bit more of a culture of being modest and, you know, well, I don't mind <laughs> whatever you think's best. Um, and um, actually not putting that flag in the sand then means that you don't really have anything to talk about when you're comparing where you are versus where you want to be. So I find that very interesting. This starts to lead us onto the artifacts or the rubrics or the thing that sits between you and your manager or above or around you that starts to inform what's possible and how you move and what's available to you, I suppose, as someone in your role. I'm really interested in like, I suppose from scratch, you're a new company or a company that's just starting to feel the pain of this. Like, how would you think about starting to put some infrastructure in place to be able to support managers in these conversations? It's a great question. So my experience, I will say, is not really starting from scratch, scratch. It's a little bit more that you've got a company. Um, so for example, when I became a manager at Asana, we had a set of three technical levels. Mm. And so each of those levels uh, was across, I think, design and product management and engineering. And they came with a salary band. And I believe they were they were probably attached to like a much more broad, um, you probably know the name of this with the rope climbing uh, examples. There's a set of tiers where it's like tier one is like can climb ropes with uh, with help. Okay. Yeah. And then there's one who can like lead an expedition and then there's someone who's like invented nylon. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> kind of talking about how like tiers go up. So one of the really nice things about being at a new startup, especially a really small one, is that is that you can sometimes get people more focused on having the whole company be successful rather than getting personally promoted. Mm. And I think that, that compensating people with equity is a great way to do this because it doesn't matter how much you get promoted if the company just goes bankrupt in a, in a few weeks. Okay. Or, yeah, but so then going a little further in terms of like, yeah, setting up a career ladders. What I discovered is all of these companies, what people typically do is they take the skills that maybe you interviewed for, like product skills and analytical skills and execution skills, and they try to describe how those skills in a an APM are different than like a PM1 or a PM2 or a senior PM. And that was what we did first at Asana is we sort of had created one of these job ladders. 
And me and, and the managers on my team were all using this to sort of explain to people why they hadn't gotten promoted. Mm-hmm. And that's what those, those ladders are really good for, is that if you're a manager and you're trying to explain to somebody why they didn't get the promotion, it's helpful to have a line in there and be like, well, you know, you didn't lead this meeting mm-hmm. uh, independently or something like that. But what we would find is that that ladder was sort of a, a mismatch to what people were actually getting promoted. Like they didn't need to actually check all of the boxes. Like missing any one of them could be what your manager tells you is the reason you didn't get promoted. But checking all of them doesn't get you promoted mm-hmm. automatically. And missing some of them isn't always a reason to not get promoted. Mm-hmm. The other thing that really jumped out at me is that when I was trying to figure out who should get promoted and how we should do salaries and stuff like that, I ended up working with a really great design manager, the manager of the designers. and as we talked about the different people on our team, we'd realized that we could tell what level somebody was, even though these are two very, very different roles with an entirely different set of skills. Mm-hmm. We would know if somebody was like a level five designer or PM. And eventually we talked to engineers as well. And we're like, yes, all of these people are clearly at the same level. Like mm-hmm. it makes sense that these people got promoted and that these are the people who are level seven versus level six versus level five. So it started to feel like there is, there's something other than the skills mm. that's determining the level. It's not the skills, even though the skills is how we all talked about it. Mm. So I talked to people from other companies as we were trying to develop our own ladder. And a lot of the words that I, I kept hearing over and over again are scope, autonomy, and impact. Mm. And when we started to dive into it, that's, uh, that's what I realized is really determining what level somebody is. It's not the specific product skills or design skills that they have. It, mm. It's what level they are. So... Yeah. So in terms of developing a career ladder for people, I definitely recommend thinking about what really differentiates one level from another. And I do think that scope, autonomy, and impact is a great way Mm. to to start framing that conversation. Great. This is definitely what I want to talk about. So when you're thinking about scope, autonomy, and impact, you drew a diagram that I saw on Twitter, which um, very hard to get across (laughs) in audio form. But it's sort of got a box. I'll describe it. It's got a box which says uh, product skills, execution, strategic skills, leadership skills. And then there's a sort of arrow pointing down and to the right that drills into scope, autonomy and impact, which then drills into level. The implication of that is the skills matter, but they are drivers of scope, autonomy and impact rather than directly driving the level themselves, which is basically what you just said. But what I'm interested in is... Um, how do you turn scope, autonomy and impact into something that people can directly work on in ways that are not entirely dependent on what project they've been given potentially or what role mm-hmm. they're in within the organization? Like basically, how would you recommend people start yeah. to think about this practically? Yes. And I actually, in my career book, so for I can talk about this from product management perspective, Perfect. is I have a specific guide for how to get from one level to the next. And so I'll give you a little summary of this. So... The APM level, like the very first product manager level, is really about learning the ropes. It's about going from somebody who has potential to someone who can do the job, knows how to ship products. And so that first promotion, you actually don't need to do too much. It's usually a time-based promotion. And what you need to do is show that you can independently get through the product lifecycle. So where people go wrong here is sometimes trying to overdo it. They try to take giant risks on their projects. And they don't just focus on like, I need to ship and I need to ship consistently. And I need to learn how this company that I'm at, how they ship things. Mm -hmm. The other thing to pay attention to here is your peer feedback. 
So that's how people will know, like if you're really upsetting somebody on your way along, that's the sort of thing that could hold you back. If you are unable to get past the typical everyday roadblocks that come up in shipping products, that can block you. But if you're trying to supercharge this, I think joining a team that ships frequently is a good way to get lots of swings at the bat. So when you're, if you've got two-year APM program, it's nice to be able to have shipped eight things in two years rather than one thing in two years. Yeah. But yeah, that first promotion, pretty easy. And it is about, yeah, building up this autonomy, like learning how to do it. First, you'll do it with lots and lots of help, but then being able to do it with less and less help. And eventually, you kind of want to get to this point where if your boss is on vacation, you could still launch. Right. That's nice. A nice heuristic. Yeah. Yeah. So then... Then you get promoted to like PM1 and PM2, and I, I group these ones together. So this is where you, you know how to launch your products. To get to the next level, it's no longer just about doing your job better. So I have to kind of talk about what senior PM is. Senior product manager, your job is no longer just shipping great products. It's building great strategies. So at the senior PM level, there's, your job changes. It's not just take the feature you're supposed to launch and launch it. And it's not just like stack rank the customer requests of what feature to build next by like the number of requests they have or by uh, benefit over cost. It's about understanding your customers and your business model and identifying new opportunities, ways for your company to grow, to have more impact. And then coming up with like, here's the future that we want to get to. And here's my plan for how we're going to get there. And then let me actually get there. Let me actually do the execution mm -hmm. and the product work every day to get up there. So how do you get promoted to senior PM if the scope you've been given doesn't allow for that? So a few things. The first is that you can start doing strategy work in your own job. You can create a strategy so that, you know, the roadmap that you're building for your team is no longer just stacked ranked by customer requests or sales requests, but instead that you've drawn a picture of where you think you might be in two years and chosen the most important projects that will get you there mm -hmm. or the most important things that you need to learn along the way to get there. So you can do it for your own project. You can also create a strategy, you know, write a strategy document for the company at large, for a new area that you think you might want to get into, something that you've seen. You can advocate for a new team to be spun up. It's a common way for people to get that promotion is that they are the ones who said, hey, I think that we need to have a product for customer support reps. And they're like, and here I've drawn it out. And they're like, great, do you want to lead the team? Yeah. And then now you have a new team and now you're the manager of that team. So identifying those opportunities, advocating for them can be really helpful. Um, and in addition there, there's also, you talk about autonomy, nuance and judgment becomes really important in that promotion. So that's where, you know, I, I talked before about how I would, I would say one deadline and the designer would say another and we'd meet in the middle. That's not showing that judgment and that nuance. I need to now be able to be someone that people trust as having good judgment. Mm -hmm. When I say something, people tend to listen because they know that I have thought through what I'm going to say mm -hmm. and that I'm right a lot more than I'm wrong. And nuance is I'm no longer like, hey, I read a blog post and this is the right way to do product management, but rather I see the ways that things can go wrong. And I understand that everything usually has a little bit of good and a little bit of bad. And also that anytime there is something that's easy or you know black and white and doesn't have nuance, I've created a framework and explained it to my team so that question never even came to me. Mm. So, so by the time you're a senior PM, you've sort of operationalized things to the point that you are dealing with the hard questions, the nuanced questions. Right, right. I wonder if um, people get caught up in maybe the things that you're meant to be doing at different levels and 
I don't write tickets anymore, all of that kind of stuff. I wonder, it sounds like what you're describing is sort of pragmatism, I suppose, over being dogmatic about any anything, whether it's a, a problem space or whether you're two weeks person. Um, but how mm. do you think about like the day to day of someone junior versus senior and how that evolves or does it have to? Great question. So one of the big things that you're doing as you move from APM to PM1 to PM2 is you're getting better and better at the day-to-day work of being a product manager or I assume for designers, it's probably very similar. And so when I'm like an intern, I might spend my entire summer on one feature and that takes up 100% of my time like every day. But when I'm a senior PM, I'm getting things done in a quarter of the time or a tenth of the time, and I have multiple teams running at the same time. At senior PM, you still need to be executing on your team. You still need to be making, you know, writing the tickets or making sure they get written. But you save a lot of time in a few different ways. Like you know how to do things, so you don't have to look them up and learn and ask people. Another is that you you get things right the first time. I think about like the specs I wrote at the beginning of my career and I might spend, you know, three weeks iterating on the spec and getting feedback on it and then changing it again and changing it again. And now some of those are things that I might write in half an hour and throw it down and it's close enough to correct that it like lives on and I don't have to take it back to a review session and another review session and another review session. You've also built up your relationship. So sometimes I just like reach out to a designer and I'm like, hey, can you give me a quick design for this? And I know which things are appropriate to do that for versus which things need, you know, something much bigger. So you save a bunch of time, you get a lot more efficient as you get more senior, and that frees up the time to do this extra stuff like strategy work. Yeah, you touched on something else that I always think about, which is how important relationships are specifically in product management. Maybe, I mean, relationships are important in every role uh, in a close-knit team, but especially in product management and working on those relationships and making sure that actually there's that level of trust that means that you can just be like, this time I did it this way, and but you have to trust me or can you just do this one thing for me and here's one paragraph and we know each other's minds anyway, so it doesn't really matter how much, how much we're talking about it. How would you think about for product managers, but then also people coaching product managers and building their teams out, like how to help people build relationships and especially with the designers and the engineers on the team. Yeah. Trust is so important. And, and I always think about these like heavyweight processes that companies have. That's what you have as the, as the fallback for when you don't have trust. Like if I don't know that you're doing everything right, I need you to go through the whole checklist, but if we trust each other, we can skip parts of it. So in terms of building trust, the biggest thing is setting up the relationship correctly. So, listening to the other person and learning what do they care about? What are their goals? What are their fears? How do they see the world? And so like initial conversation, you know, just being like, Hey, I'm excited to be here. What are you working on? What brought you to this company? You know, what are you most excited about? And then be like, how do you like to work with a product manager? You know, is there anything product managers have done that you love anything that like really, you know, you don't like it all. For me, these are very uncomfortable conversations. We get to be brave enough and be like, how often would you like to check in on your work? Do you want me to ask to see your work or do you want to send it to me? Mm. <laughs> For me, the trust starts with, um, like if I'm trusting someone, it's that I trust that you understand my goals and you care about them. And that's, I think, so fundamental. And this especially applies, I think, about working with like customer support reps. Mm. And it's so easy to sort of brush off their concerns and think like, okay, you're in a totally different part of the company. Why should I care? 
But if you listen to people and you say like, okay, I understand what your job is. I understand, for example, that how fast you resolve a customer ticket is really important um, to your career and to the way that like the managers operationalize the team. So I will listen if you're telling me that my solution isn't working for you and I'll care about it because a product manager should be able to represent the people who aren't in the room. And you wouldn't want me representing you when you're not in the room if you didn't think I, I knew what you cared about. So I, I'd say that that's the most important. And then, of course, there is the stuff that's harder to affect, which is like, are you competent? Do you have good judgment? I'd say that as a product manager, uh, especially people that are newly graduated from college and like to just, you know, say whatever's on their mind. <laughs> a lot of fun. But but sometimes people... Uh, they can develop a reputation as someone who doesn't have the strongest judgment because they're just like a little bit too willing to like share their bad opinions about stuff that has nothing to do with the team they're on. Mm, yeah. The loudest person in the room sometimes isn't the most, uh, yeah, a hundred percent. So I'd love to go back to something that you mentioned before. I went in a different direction at that point in time, but I think it's really interesting. You talked about making the team successful rather than making yourself successful. It's quite a nuanced point to make. It's counterintuitive to think, well, if I try and make the team successful, then am I looking out for myself? You know, is the team to be trusted? You know, maybe I, should, I need to be, to game theory this out, maybe I just need to back myself every time. I, I'm just interested in um, how you think about doing that and making sure that people can, I suppose, feel comfortable doing things that aren't necessarily almost obviously in their own self-interest? Maybe that's a very cynical question to ask. Yeah. I, I love the cynical questions because I think so much of what's hard about careers is that there's so much that we're not allowed to say out loud. Mm -hmm. And the truth is everybody is kind of selfishly looking out for their own interest or they would go to another company if they didn't feel like this was the best place for them. So in terms of putting your team in front of yourself, what I say is, your goal is not to have the most successful, not to make your current launch as successful as possible. Your goal is to be able to have successful launches over the next two years with your team. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really matter if you had an amazing launch, you know, this month, if your team now doesn't want to work with you and is telling people, you know, asking to have a different product manager on their team. So if you take just like a slightly longer term view, just like one or two years out, and you think about how do I make my team be as successful over that time period, it becomes a lot easier to put your team first mm -hmm. because then the relationships do matter. And then also you see that sometimes it's okay to let people make mistakes. Like it's all right if this launch doesn't go as well as possible because now people are learning things and we're building their skills and they'll be better for the future launches. It also gives you a nice line for when it's not okay to let people make mistakes. I think sometimes there's a... Uh, there's sort of a trend in coaching now that seems to be like, go to the far end of empowerment and let people on your team do whatever they want and like trust that they always know what's best. And it's like, well, especially at a startup, you can't just accept any kind of mistake or that it could affect the company's success. And so having that line of judgment of some of these things we do need to get right. And sometimes it's worth it to step in. Mm. Ideally, I've set up things so that it doesn't feel like I'm stepping in and taking over. It's much better to say, please bring things to me for review and then, you know, we'll discuss them and then we'll launch them rather than they thought they never needed a review and I have to jump in and say, now you need a review. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and sometimes that's hard because you sort of want to protect your team and give them all the opportunities and all of that kind of good stuff. But at the same time, 
it's a challenge as a manager, I think, always to work out when to say, actually, this is the direction we need to go in or et cetera, versus letting the team learn that themselves and or, or like mm-hmm. find their own way. Yeah. One of the things that we did at Asana that I loved was this framework we called Do, Try, Consider. And it's how we give feedback to um, people on the team. And the do feedback is like, this is an order. You need to like change this to that. Mm. And we tried to do that very, very rarely. Consider was like, here's like my opinion as a manager. I'm going to tell it to you. And I want you to spend like 30 seconds thinking about it. I don't want you to brush me off, (laughs) but like, I don't want you to like necessarily spend a day going back to this. Just like, think about what I said and let me know if that makes sense or not. Mm. And then the try would be in the middle saying something like, can you try a design like this and come back and show me what you did and see if you like this design better. Mm. And that let us as managers really be specific about what kind of feedback we were giving because without that, before we had that, we found that people would either think that our feedback was too serious and too much of an order when we didn't mean it to be, or they would think that, you know, they didn't have to worry about it at all. And they wouldn't take the things that we were trying to be serious about. Everything is just a chat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. Uh, do try consider. I really like that. And it is so hard. I've now found as someone with a C-level title, even in a very small company, I can't just bowl into a design conversation and have opinions with everyone else. Like however much I want to feel like a designer again, you know, I have to be careful with what I say because people hear it in different ways so sort of talking about different hats it's a really crap way of doing it probably but um, that's how I've tried to get around that yeah fantastic I want to I suppose end this bit on impact impact ultimately is like the success of the work that you do I mean it's probably the ultimate driver of the comparison of apples versus oranges across everyone how can you have impact as a manager versus how can you have impact as a and IC and parallel tracks, like, can we be super senior as ICs and even have the same level of impact as, as a manager? I'm interested in if I'm optimizing for impact as someone, say, in the first 10 years of my career, just trying to work out how to, to navigate my way. Like, how would you think about working out what impact looks like, measuring it, mm-hmm. comparing it versus people that are doing completely different work to you? Yeah, um, great question. So... I think your impact needs to be tied to the company goals. And so if your company has goals, that's great. You can connect your your impact to the goals. Or if they don't, I think it's worthwhile to have some conversations with people and try to write down a few objectives. You know, so you might have a goal that's around revenue growth or a goal that's around, you know, new user growth or a goal around retention of premium customers. But you also might have other goals. You have one around defining the market that had to do with analyst reports and PR articles, as well as um, actually advancing the capabilities to define a new market. Um, And we had some around customer love that we would like measure maybe with NPS scores, but also CSAT, customer satisfaction from customer tickets. And so that first step of having the company agree that this is what we consider impactful, that sets you up to now measure your own impact of, was I able to contribute meaningfully to any of these objectives? And I'd say that the, for a product manager, the really smallest obvious thing is to switch from saying my goal is to launch a feature to saying my goal is to launch the feature successfully 
and start defining what successfully means. And usually that can mean something like I launch it and at least this many people use it and at least this many people keep using it. And depending on how good you are at measuring things, you might say, and it drives an increase in retention or revenue or any of these other metrics you care about. Sometimes you can't connect it all the way to the end. Um, a lot of times we don't have enough, enough users and enough data points to do that. But just that small shift from the goal is to launch it and like hit the date to the goal is to launch it and mm -hmm. some measurement of, and we knew it was a good idea to launch it. We knew that we hadn't launched something terrible. Mm. To pull in autonomy, maybe feeling confident, pushing back on some, some of that scope or launching something different or launching some of it, if you believe that actually that would be the more impactful thing. One thing that we're talking about internally is how do we measure learning? Like how do we get into that cadence of making sure that we're talking about learning and celebrating that as well as just shipping. Shipping is great fun. Yeah. Um, but how do we make sure we're learning? I suppose I'm interested actually, now I've, now I've mentioned that, I'm interested in how you think about learning as impact. Mm -hmm. Yes. So one of the things that we would sometimes do at Asana that I loved is we would do chained OKRs, or we called ours KRs because we had company-wide objectives and each team had our own key results. But what we would do is we'd imagine that if our goal was to launch, you know, a timeline view, you know, six months from now, our goal in the, the next few months is to launch a successful beta program. And successful is defined by we are able to answer the key questions we need to know to feel confident in starting engineering work. And then that would go on to saying later on that oh, we would do like an A-B test and that from the A-B test, we would learn these sets of things. So we would have several learning OKRs that each one would lead to the next one and eventually lead to a successful launch. That way we could measure that we were actually learning the thing we wanted to be learning, which requires upfront work to have a better sense of which of your hypotheses you're less sure about and need to be validated. Mm. Very useful. I would love to ask you one last question, which may be slightly different, but something that we're very interested in and I think is really important is as a product manager or anyone, I suppose, anyone's career, what would you recommend that someone does today to make sure that they're able to maximize, I suppose, the decisions they make and the moves they make within their career, independent, I suppose, of the work that they're doing? Is there anything else that I should be thinking about if I'm sitting here being like, okay, I want to spend some time on my career? Yeah. So we mentioned this already, but talking to your manager about what you would like to do in the future. And um, maybe you have some suggestions for the, the best way to say this in the UK culture, <laughs> but to be able to soften it in some way to say, here is what I think I would love to be able to do in the future. What's most important for me to focus on now to get there? And a related version of this is that early in their career, people often get, keep doing what you're doing. Mm. And I, I find that the most frustrating feedback at all. So if you get that feedback, I would suggest to ask... Um, Awesome. I'm going to keep doing what I was doing. If I had already been promoted, if I were already a senior level PM, would this also be amazing work I'm doing and keep doing what you're doing? Or if I were already a senior PM, what feedback would you have for me now? And that sort of unlocks that next level feedback that can give you the next thing to start focusing on. I love that because that really puts managers through their paces as well. Like you're making me really think about what I expect of you in a way that I think it's really easy. As you say, just keep doing what you're doing. And then at some point, well, it's been a year, it's, you know, it's just all of these things, all of these factors, whether it's time or laziness is maybe unfair because there's a lot of managers that want to be doing better, I think, but don't have the tools yet. But really asking your manager and making them do work 
feels really important to me. Uh, and I think good managers want to do that work. They want an excuse to do that work. So. Mm -hmm. As a manager, I would really think about what kind of work do you want to be doing? Mm. And to do that work that you want to do, what work do you have to give up? Mm. And how can you grow the people on your team so they can take on the work that you don't want to do anymore? Because that's the sweet spot of work. That's a growth opportunity for them and a huge benefit for you to be able to delegate. So if you think about this, it really helps you realize how much growing people on your team helps not only them and not only the company, but also you personally. Absolutely. Delegation is <laughs> really key. If you are talking about skills, maybe for managers learning how to delegate and give up your Legos. It's a very important one. Jackie, this has been awesome. Let's leave it there. I'd love to just end. Let me know where can we find you online? What's the latest on the books? How do we find them? Etc. Nice. I'm most active on Twitter at Jackie Bow, J-A-C-K-I-E-B-O. And my books are both on Amazon, Cracking the PM Interview and Cracking the PM Career. Awesome. I would definitely recommend looking for more interviews and listening to Jackie elsewhere. I'm a huge Lenny fan, so I caught that one this week. <laughs> thank you so much for your time and I uh, really appreciate it and have a wonderful day. Yeah, thank you for having me.